Welcome to Speed of Science, the podcast. This series was created by Science Gallery at Trinity College Dublin and is supported by Pfizer. Speed of Science is a specially created window exhibition where we examine the world we live in now and what the world could look like in the future. Speed of Science is an evolution of 2019's We Are All Scientists, an exhibition that examined the characteristics we all have that we use when we think scientifically. Speed of Science examines how we have all been called upon to be scientists in our response to the coronavirus pandemic. This podcast series examines the role vaccines play in our daily lives, from personal scale, where we hear about how vaccines work inside our bodies, to looking at community or herd immunity and how that functions. And then onto a more global scale, where we understand the current context of vaccine development and what we can hope for from the future. Featuring conversations between science gallery mediators and lead researchers in Trinity College Dublin, we hope that this will be an enlightening and enjoyable experience. This episode features Dr. Rachel McLaughlin in conversation with science gallery mediator Kate Duggan, examining the concept of community or herd immunity. We're going to talk a little bit today about herd immunity. Um, So this is something that we've heard a lot about, particularly in the context of um, COVID-19. And the idea of today's podcast is to get a clear idea of what it is and what it isn't. Um, So with that in mind, we've invited Dr. Rachel McLaughlin. She's a professor in Trinity um, and she works in immunology and biochemistry. But she's also quite active um, in vaccine education and information. So Rachel, if you could talk a little bit about what kind of research you normally do um, from kind of a researcher and outreach perspective um, and maybe how this has changed or taken on a new meaning in the last while. Hi, Kate. Yeah, so my lab in Trinity is focused on understanding how our immune system responds to infection because we know that what vaccines need to do is to help our immune system to recognise and respond to a pathogen so that if we get infected, we're able to to deal with it. But before we develop new vaccines, we have to understand what part of the immune system we need to target in those new vaccines. And so that's why the basic science behind vaccine development really focuses on understanding immune responses to infection. And in my lab, we're particularly interested in the infection caused by the bacterium Staphylococcus aureus. So people might be more familiar with the term MRSA. Um, And MRSA is infections caused by this bacterium Staphylococcus aureus, but for which the antibiotics that we have don't work. So one of the really big reasons why we need new vaccines in this area is because of the global problem of antibiotic resistance. So we have antibiotics that at one point we use to treat bacterial infections, but these bacteria are no longer um, susceptible to the antibiotics that we have. So if we had a vaccine, the idea then would be we could prevent these infections in the first place. So it wouldn't matter whether or not the antibiotics worked or not because we prevent people getting infected with these bacterial species in the first place. So that's really where my research focus has been for the last number of years, is understanding how our immune system responds when it sees this bacterium Staphylococcus aureus and trying to figure out ways that we could target the immune response potentially in a new vaccine. 
So even though you're working with quite an established pathogen, it's kind of analogous in some ways to what we're facing now in that in the absence of kind of an effective, reliable treatment, that vaccination is really a really important strategy in combating these kind of infections. Absolutely. I mean, vaccines save millions of lives globally every year. We have vaccines to treat a number or to prevent against a number of different infectious diseases. We don't have vaccines to treat a lot of the infections that are killing millions of people every year. So as I, as I mentioned, for example, infections caused by antibiotic resistant bacteria. But also, of course, we don't have vaccines against new pathogens. And COVID-19 has highlighted that problem for us. That we need to be equipped and prepared for the next big threat that might come our way. Absolutely. Um, so I suppose in, in the current kind of times, we're hearing a lot about, about vaccines and about public health strategies kind of based on vaccines. And one of the terms that we're hearing a lot is herd immunity. Um, so I suppose as an immunologist, you're, you're quite well placed to, to kind of help us understand this a little bit better, because it seems like there's a lot of confusion about what this term actually is. So maybe if you could start by just um, explaining what you understand herd immunity to be. So... Infections can spread very rapidly through community, and, and we've witnessed that before our very eyes over the last few months of this year. And very quickly, infections can make a lot of people sick. If enough people are vaccinated against a particular infectious disease, then the disease can't spread. And that, in its simplest terms, is what herd immunity is. If bacteria or viruses can't infect people, then they're stopped in their tracks. They need somewhere to go. They need someone to be able to infect if they are to spread. So for example, if I am, I'm infected and I interact with three people and I infect those three people, and then those three people go on to infect a further three people who then infect a further three people, you can see how very quickly the disease can spread through a community. If one of the people who I interact with is vaccinated, that reduces the spread by one third. If two out of the three people who I interact with are vaccinated, you have a significant reduction in the spread of the virus. So you don't need everyone in your community to be immune. You just need a significant portion of people to be immune to stop the bacteria or the viral infection spreading. And by doing this, you can then protect those vulnerable people within a community who may not be able to, to be vaccinated. And there are some people who can't be vaccinated. So for example, very young babies under two months of age, they can't receive vaccines. So by preventing spread of infectious diseases within the community, we're directly prevent, uh, protecting those very small babies from being exposed to the infections. Absolutely. So it seems that what you're kind of saying is that um, in, in this regard, the actual the vaccination, the benefits of vaccination are twofold. So you have this benefit to the individual who is protected from infection, but also that by being vaccinated, they protect other people from becoming infected. Um, and so it kind of works as this kind of community effect. Exactly. When we, when we think about vaccination, so the times you have to think about vaccination very much so are as a parent, obviously, because parents have to make the decision to take their children to be vaccinated. But also as an individual, for example, we need to make a decision this year, are we going to get the flu vaccine? And when hopefully the COVID-19 vaccine comes, we're going to have to make decisions around that. So maybe it helps to think about the fact that when you're vaccinating yourself or your children, you're not only keeping your own family safe and healthy, you're also keeping your community safe and healthy. And that's why herd immunity is sometimes referred to as community immunity. So when it comes to vaccination, I've heard it said before, it's a team sport. You know, we, we are in it together. To make it work, we all have to buy in to the concept of vaccination. 
So how does that compare then to some of the narratives that we're now seeing emerge about herd immunity, which is kind of shifting a focus away from this very like compassionate community centered approach and just essentially kind of proposing allowing a virus to spread through a population uncontrolled? I do worry about some of the recent focus on herd immunity as a strategy or failed strategy for uh, controlling COVID-19 infection and that this might have a negative impact on communicating how important herd immunity actually is for achieving vaccine-induced control of infection. So suddenly the term herd immunity is part of everyday speak. Um, And there's lots of discussions on the pros and cons of, of herd immunity as a strategy for dealing with COVID. But up until the onset of this pandemic, really, as I said, herd immunity was only associated with the positive effects of vaccination. And the idea of using herd immunity as a strategy to deal with an infectious disease is certainly not something we should consider. It's a very, very dangerous strategy and for a number of reasons. So the concept involves letting infection spread through the society, which, yes, will end up with a proportion of individuals within that population generating immunity. However, in the process of this, vast numbers of people are going to die and vast numbers of people are going to get very sick. And when we look at a virus as unpredictable as the SARS coronavirus 2, we don't know who those people are going to be. So as an individual, who would be happy to take the risk of themselves getting sick or people in their family getting sick or dying to allow this this virus to spread? And the other thing we need to remember about this virus is that up until 10 months ago, we didn't even know it existed. So we're learning all the time about how it causes disease and importantly, how it interacts with our immune system. We don't yet know for sure that if you're infected, that's going to protect you against reinfection. So there is some evidence to suggest that people can be reinfected, although the disease seems to be milder in these, in these people. But there's no way to fast track accurate information on this. The only way we will know this is if we wait and do multiple years of longitudinal studies. And finally, I think the clearest reason for not pursuing herd immunity as a strategy to deal with COVID-19 is that we've never been before been able to achieve herd immunity via natural infection. Vaccination is the only safe and ethical way to achieve herd immunity. Exactly. So, I mean, I think looking at looking at the vaccination approach and looking at so somebody who works in vaccine development, it must be kind of it must be quite annoying to see something that has immense power as a public health tool, something like herd immunity, which, as you say, is at its core about protecting the vulnerable, those who cannot be vaccinated, um, being used as a narrative to actually put these vulnerable people more at risk. Exactly. And I think what we probably need to start doing now is to really change the narrative a little bit around herd immunity. And personally, I really like this notion of community immunity. As I mentioned, it, it, some people in certain places, it is herd immunity is referred to as population immunity or community immunity. And, uh, you know, it, the word herd itself, it typically is used to describe livestock, right? So perhaps it isn't the best choice of words to encourage the population to engage with vaccine uptake. And if we think about it as community immunity, I think that more accurately describes what we want to achieve. That is the prevention of disease within our community. So everybody has a part to play um, in, in achieving herd immunity. And for anyone who might be in any way hesitant about vaccination, again, you need to remember that vaccination is not only protecting you and your family, but it's protecting 
the wider community and in particular those in the community who may be more vulnerable. So um, I suppose one of the other questions around this idea of herd immunity or community immunity um, is this idea of a threshold. Um, so kind of a number of people that need to be vaccinated um, or need to be immune um, for the strategy to be effective. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So the proportion of the population that needs to be immune to establish herd immunity and to prevent the spread of the disease within the community, it varies depending on the infecting organism. So there's no simple straight answer to that. If we look at a disease like measles, for example, that's a very contagious disease. And it's estimated that we need 95% of the population to be immune to measles to halt the spread of a measles um, infection within the community. So the threshold or the level of vaccine coverage that you need depends on the reproduction number or the R0 number. So this is the number of cases that can be caused by coming in contact with one infected case. So the higher the number of people who become infected when they encounter an infected individual, the higher the proportion of the population that needs to be immune to achieve herd immunity. So again, if we look at measles, the R number for measles can be up to 18. So one infected person can potentially infect up to 18 different people. And that dictates that we need approximately 95% of the population to be immune to achieve herd immunity. Now, despite the usefulness of these numbers, they don't always take into account the real life situation. And for that reason, it's very hard to predict the threshold that's required to provide herd immunity for a new disease such as COVID-19. First of all, we need to wait and see how effective any new vaccine might be. But then second to that, because the threshold is based on the infective rate, if the infective rate changes, then the threshold required to achieve herd immunity will change. So if the levels of the virus circulating in the community are reduced due to other measures such as mask wearing, social distancing, we the level of um, the threshold for achieving herd immunity will reduce. So if and when we get these, these new elusive vaccines, the likelihood is that we will have to use the vaccines in conjunction with other um, measures that are still in place, like the mask wearing and the social distancing. But we need to remember that even if we were to get vaccine coverage of 50%, that's going to go a long way towards reducing the circulation of the virus within the community. That's quite interesting because I do think that when we talk about um, a vaccine for COVID-19, it's often presented as, as kind of an either or that we either have what we're, the measures that we're doing now or we have a vaccine. But it's interesting to hear that actually the our success with a vaccine is also dependent on behaviour, um, kind of further, you know, strengthening this community spirit um, in ways other than just community immunisation targets. Absolutely. The first thing we need is an effective vaccine. And we are patiently waiting for the data from the clinical trials on the vaccines that are in development currently for COVID-19 to see how effective they will be. But once we have an effective vaccine, the next big challenge is going to be to get sufficient uptake. So herd immunity or community immunity can only be achieved if one, we have an effective vaccine, but two, if enough people take that vaccine. And so what are some of the challenges you think in ensuring that enough people take that vaccine? So it's something that um, at the moment we've seen a couple of studies published recently that suggest that there's a fairly significant amount of people who are unsure whether they would take a vaccine. Um, would that kind of jeopardise our ability to meet these these targets with respect to community immunity? It will. The biggest threat to community immunity will be and has always been 
a not sufficient uptake of the vaccination. So hesitancy among people. So people who are hesitant about taking the vaccine is the biggest threat to to community immunity. You need people to take the vaccine if we want it to work. It's understandable that people are hesitant and it's perfectly acceptable to ask questions. In fact, it's important to ask questions. Nobody wants to do anything that will put their own health or the health of their children at risk. However, vaccines that have been approved, the vaccines that we have currently approved, they've gone through rigorous clinical trial processes. So the data is there that proves their safety and proves their e efficacy. The new vaccines in, in development for COVID-19 have been fast-tracked through the clinical trial process. And some people might stop and ask, well, hang on a second, these vaccines have come to market very, very quickly. How can we be sure that they were safe? The clinical trial process has not been compromised. The new vaccines that are in clinical trials at the moment are still having to go through the same levels of rigour that any other vaccine would have had to go through. So we need to wait and look at the data. We can only, the only thing as a scientist, the only thing we do is we trust the data. When the data becomes available, we will know how effective the vaccine is and we will know how safe the vaccine is. And it is based on that information that people should make their judgment as to whether or not to take the vaccines. And if the vaccines are safe and the vaccines are effective, they will have the potential to protect the entire community from infection. So people should therefore be comfortable and confident to take the vaccines and, and get the vaccine. And the other point to make is that about the speed at which the COVID-19 vaccines are coming to market. The reason for that is because of years and years of work that has gone into vaccine research and development and the knowledge and tools that were available to us when coronavirus um, emerged earlier this year, that knowledge and tools could then be applied to that virus. So, the development of these virus, these vaccines, while they started this year, but the knowledge and the tools that are being used in the processes have been taking years and years to, to develop. So really what you're saying is that actually kind of that understanding more about this process and people being aware of the context of this, that it, you know, this, this speed in development hasn't just come out of nowhere, that it's crucial in building up the trust necessary for us to actually achieve true community immunity rather than what's currently being um, spouted as an effective solution. That's correct. And that's why investment and support for basic research and development is so important. There are hundreds and hundreds of labs all around the globe who have been working on how viruses target the immune system, how viruses manipulate the immune system, how best to develop novel strategies for delivering vaccines. And all of this knowledge and information was then taken and applied to the SARS coronavirus 2 virus earlier this year when it emerged. And as a global population, that's why it's so important we continue to do this type of research and development because we never know when the next threat is around the corner. But my firm belief is that you know, in the end, science will, will, will win out. You know, we are a very um, highly intelligent population of people. We have the tools, we have the skills. We will get the better of this virus, but it just will take some time. And so looking at other diseases from identification of um, the cause to vaccine development and vaccine administration, are there any particular lessons we can learn um, from other diseases where herd immunity has been, um, or community immunity through vaccination has been an effective strategy? So I suppose the simplest measure of the success of vaccination 
is evidence that it has led to the complete eradication of two diseases so far. So not just reduce the levels of circulation or infection of these diseases, completely eradicated the diseases from the globe. So smallpox and rinderpest are the two um, infections which have been completely eradicated. And a third, polio, is all but eradicated globally now. There are only two countries in the world, Afghanistan and Pakistan, where polio is still present. And even there, it occurs in very, very low levels. And at the end of the summer, we saw that Africa was officially declared polio-free, which was a huge achievement for the vaccination program. The eradication of these diseases has not resulted from the fact that 100% of the global population were vaccinated. That would obviously never be possible. But enough people received the vaccines to prevent the spread of the diseases in the community. So if the virus has nowhere to go, if it doesn't have anyone to infect, it, it won't spread and it will eventually die out completely from the community. So again, reiterating the point when it comes to vaccination, community immunity works and the evidence is clear, diseases can be eradicated. So you don't really need to see anything more than that to prove that it does work. Absolutely. And I think particularly with those with those achievements, what, what you see is the, the really the hard work and the many challenges that people working in vaccination on the ground in those countries have faced. Um, really a testament to just how much effort it can be, a, an effort that's well worth it, but that it's it's not something to be discussed or thrown around lightly, especially, you know, when it's not linked to one of its core things, which is vaccination. It's hugely important in this context. Sure. And I mean, if we, if we look at polio again, there was there was a huge global effort to challenge to try to eradicate polio. And this involved obviously getting millions and millions of doses of the vaccine administered to very isolated communities. But again, the vaccine was not given to 100% of the people. It was given to enough people to stop the spread of the disease. So this community immunity was the power behind the full eradication of these diseases, or the close to eradication that we have now of polio. And in the future, I'm confident we're going to see eradication of further diseases. Once the vaccine uptake is kept high, it can be achieved. And of course, we constantly hope that we're going to have new vaccines developed, which will help us to target more and more devastating infectious diseases. So I suppose one of the one of the core things that really stands out from this is that um, herd immunity is, is something that requires immense effort to achieve. Um, and I wonder, just as a final question, as, as somebody who works um, in vaccines and in vaccine development, is there something that you would like to change about the way that this is reported on? What are there particular things that you think should be highlighted in um, news reporting on immunity strategies and public health? So obviously, based on my own background, I am very passionate about vaccination. And interestingly, in my experience personally as a parent, I experienced the whole vaccination process, from, obviously from a different side. And a lot of the parents that I interacted with when I was out and about with, my, with my, my children when they were young babies, they were all very pro-vaccination. So I think the majority, vast majority of people in this country are pro-vaccination. You know, they're happy to take their children to get vaccinated because they know it's the right thing to do. 
But what was interesting to me was a lot of these people who I interacted with, while they were happy to take their children for vaccination, they didn't fully comprehend exactly how important these vaccines were, how many diseases, for example, our childhood immunization schedule protected against, or the concept of herd immunity and how important that was for protecting the vulnerable within society. So I think we've heard a lot in recent years from the sort of anti-vax movement, and that's a very vocal group of individuals. But my concern is that the rest of us who may be pro-vaccination are just a little bit quiet. You know, people are not out there talking about, I just had my baby vaccinated. He got vaccinated against 13 different diseases. Isn't that amazing? That's not the kind of chatter that we hear. We hear a lot of the negative and then perhaps people just take their vaccines but don't really talk about, don't really think about and don't really appreciate how truly important they are. So from my perspective as a vaccine advocate, that's sort of what I would love to achieve is to just to change the narrative in society, not to try to convince people that this is something, if, they don't, if they're not comfortable doing it, it's very difficult to change people's minds, but to just change the general chatter about vaccination to become more appreciative and, you know, of how amazing vaccination is. It it is an amazing tool that we have available to us to protect ourselves, to protect our children and to protect our community. And we should really celebrate that as a community. Absolutely. And I suppose in the context of um, an acute kind of emerging public health concern like COVID-19, I suppose normally with, with these kind of vaccine hesitancy, these sentiments, they're normally around kind of established um, pathogens that people maybe don't perceive them as being as much of a threat anymore. There's no sense of urgency. Um, But we still do see this sentiment with something that is quite urgent and really a key solution to helping us get out of the crisis that we're in. Why do you think that is? So, I mean, vaccine hesitancy, as I said, it, it exists. It has existed for many, many years. And one of the things that contributes to vaccine hesitancy is... Um, confidence. So people need to have confidence that the vaccines that they're taking or that they're giving to their children will work and are safe. And so for the established vaccines, there's more time, there's more data, there's more information available for people to make the informed decision about the safety and the effectiveness of those vaccines. For a new vaccine, naturally people are going to have concerns. How could you not? However, I think we have to stop and put it into context. Look at the world we're living in at the moment. Look at the devastating effects that a viral pandemic can have globally. Nobody in this world could have foreseen what was going to happen in 2020. Vaccines are a powerful tool that will be available to us, hopefully very soon, to help deal with this pandemic. So I think you have to weigh up the risks and the benefits. And nobody wants to live like how we're living now. So the vaccine is going to be an option for us to emerge from this pandemic. And as I said, there's no point in having a vaccine unless it's effective and unless it's safe. And the vaccines that are coming through the clinical trials at the moment are going through a rigorous process to establish that efficacy and that safety. And finally, just, I suppose, considering this this strategy going forward, considering people's willingness to take up a vaccine and its subsequent impact on our achieving of community immunity, um, how important do you think it is to create this sense of togetherness with regards to these infectious diseases? Um, You know, as regards to how the infection spreads, 
you know, as long as it's out there, as long as there are people infected, there's the possibility of other people being infected. So it's really, a, it's, a, it's a kind of a team effort. Yes, and that's why perhaps moving forward now, we need to start embracing this concept of community immunity. Throughout this global pandemic, we have been challenged to think of our community. You know, we're asked to stay at home. We're asked to keep our distance. We've been asked to stop doing things that we want to do and we like to do and we enjoy doing. And we're doing it to protect ourselves, but also to protect our community, to protect our hospitals from being overwhelmed, to protect our ICUs from being overwhelmed. So as a nation, we've proven that we can pull together as a community in the face of adversity and make the changes that are necessary to do what needs to be done. And I think when the vaccines become available, that's the next step in that journey. It's the next step in pulling together as a community, understanding that by taking the vaccine, you're going to be able to protect yourself and your family, but you're also being able to keep the community safe and allow our community, hopefully, to return to some sort of normality, whatever that may be. I think that's quite an interesting way of putting it. And I think it's a way which really um, kind of takes the concept of herd immunity back to its true meaning um, rather than some of maybe the distorted interpretations um, that we see nowadays that not only, I suppose, have implications for how we talk about COVID-19, but as you said previously, they have implications for the work that you and other researchers who work in other vaccine development um, they have strong implications for that kind of work as well. Um, so I do think it's important to um, really understand the importance of a community, um, community-based approach to public health. Um, yes, because what we can't afford to happen is for any negative connotations that perhaps now might be associated with the term herd immunity as a consequence of the COVID-19 pandemic to impact the years of work that has been done to try to educate and promote vaccine uptake among particularly parents, as I said, because they're the primary individuals who are responsible for immunising the children in this country. And, but I do think on the other way to look at this, again, is this global pandemic has never before shone a spotlight on the devastating effects of an infectious disease quite real, so real in people's lives. Um, so I do think that perhaps there will be positives to come out of it and people will realise just how dangerous these infectious diseases can be. And hopefully, the hope is that it will actually lead to a better uptake in vaccines generally once this all calms down. So by being faced with kind of an acute threat, we better understand the importance of strategies that have always been there, that have always been working, but that, you know, maybe have never seemed as urgent to most people. Exactly, because the other um, thing that can contribute to vaccine hesitancy is complacency. And complacency stems from the fact that, you know, you might not be concerned about taking a vaccine because you have never seen someone who had measles. You've never seen someone die from meningitis. It's not something that you can really relate to. Whereas now we can all relate to the devastation that a viral pandemic can cause. So, yeah, I think that's quite a, it's quite a valuable look at what is a really important concept in public health, what will continue to be for the foreseeable future and 
beyond even this current threat. Um, so it's it's really it's really interesting to hear a perspective of somebody who um, understands the complexity of the term and is able to articulate it in such a such a clear way. So thank you for your contribution. You're very welcome. Thanks, Kate. That was Speed of Science, the podcast, brought to you by Science Gallery at Trinity College Dublin and Pfizer. Thank you for joining us today and be sure to check out the other podcasts in this series.